HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash Great Nation. This episode of The Great Nation is brought to you by Washington Wine. With over 1,000 wineries and 70 grape varieties, Washington State is home to wine the world is talking about. Learn more at WashingtonWine.org. It's Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation. This past January, I had the opportunity to attend the Naples Winter Wine Festival and sit down with some of the best winemakers from around the world. This was all pre-COVID-19, of course. I spoke with two different wineries. The first interview was with Census Wines with Chris Streeter and Miles Lawrence Briggs from the West Sonoma Coast. And the second interview was with Will Harlan from Promontory Wine, part of the uh, Harlan legacy. Enjoy. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey on the Heritage Radio Network. We are at the Naples Winter Wine Festival, benefiting the Naples Children and Education Foundation. Our guests are Chris, I screwed up. Is it Streeter or Strider? Streeter's right. You got it. <laughs> and Miles Lawrence Briggs? Oh, there you go. Yeah, you Not Biggs. Not Biggs. Right. No, no. Boy, I'm really prepared. Huh? Yeah. Um, from Senses Wine. Is that how we pronounce it? Yeah, Senses Wine, Senses. Senses? You got it. Okay. In Sonoma County in California. Welcome to the Grape Nation, guys. Pleasure to be here. Chris, yeah, you and I have been talking about sitting down for a while now, so it's nice to uh, catch up at uh, Naples. Um, so you guys, and there's a third guy, Max, are childhood friends. And what was it, about 2011? Exactly. You had this idea, and take the story from there. Yeah, so 
I'll, I'll start here. Uh, we've been friends since preschool. So I don't know how old we were. Three, four. Jesus. Yeah. You're talking so deep. We go back. So Miles, Max, and I have been friends for that long. And we are still friends after starting a business, which I think is a big deal. But all three of us went different ways. So when we were young, we collected bugs. We built tree forts. I mean, we grew up in the vineyards, but not knowing what grapes were. So they were just a thing that were in the, back, the background. And But wait, just... Don't forget where you're at, but you said something that's important. You, uh-huh. grew, up, you grew up in the vineyards, yeah. which is a common thing because your families were involved in... Well, Miles, you go. Yeah, I mean, my family growing up, they grew uh, grapes and sold them to some local wineries, including Gary Farrell. That was one that they did business Good with. Good stuff. Yeah, but as uh, the, the vineyard itself is extremely old, and actually, as best as we can figure, it, it's probably the first planting on the western Sonoma coast. Uh, we really? think it was planted in 1974 as Gray Riesling, and then got grafted over to Chardonnay uh, sometime in the 80s. Uh, by the time I was uh, 10 or 11 or so, um, it was just so old and disease it had to come out so my family they, they grew grapes and then they kind of got out of it um, and then uh, I never thought in a million years we'd get sucked back into it but that's just how it works and then you I didn't grow up on a vineyard <laughs> but uh, yeah my, my entry to wine was kind of like sideways I went to school in Claremont Harvey Mudd College math econ physics masters in finance Claremont McKenna but I met a woman Julia Jackson whose family owns a small winery called Kendall Jackson and fall in love with a girl and work for the family. And I learned what grapes were. I that learned was, what wine was. That was, was your entree. That was how it started. That was, you know, we were drinking two bucks. Boy, Chuck you hit it that. hard, man. <laughs> the Jacksons, right? Yeah. I mean. Well, Jess Jackson and Barbara Banky were like second parents. And learning from Jess, it was inspiring. And I realized I had an entrepreneurial bug. So when I graduated with the master's, I got in touch with Miles and Max. We wrote the business plan to start a winery. We had no idea what we were writing. And so when we went home at 22 and took over Miles Vineyard to start and put up our savings to make 100 cases of wine, it was a complete, it, it was a great test run, if you will. But when we sold out and got some great scores, we're like, oh crap, this is real. And that's when we really rolled up the sleeves and went all in on And then your third friend is not here, Max. Yeah. Max's family are vineyard owners, too. So Max's family, you know, he... I didn't realize the prestige of the Terriot Vineyard at the time, even in 2011 when we started. You see it as a vineyard designate on a bunch of wines. Yeah, I was like, oh, Ted Lemon from Literai, like, cool. But when you start looking it up, it was one of the top five, top ten vineyards, more or less, in California, year after year. Very well-respected, yeah. Yeah, and Max's dad planted that with Warren Dutton back in the 80s. Right. So, basically... I'm talking to a bunch of guys, an actor or a grad student and an English lit major. Yeah. And that qualifies you guys. And some guy who kind of backs in, you know, with a big famous family and all that to make wine. Um, yeah, basically. <laughs> but when you were talking about making that first wine, was when was that? Yeah, 2011. So we made 50 cases Pinot, 50 what cases What was the vintage Chardonnay. year? Was it the 11 vintage? 2011 vintage. We worked with the Duttons to get started. Didn't and 11, like, suck in yeah. California? It wasn't a great year, right? It wasn't the best, but <clears throat> we, we were lucky that at that point we weren't responsible for farming any vineyards yet. Uh, so we, we were able to do a test run without the, the heartache of the poor yields that a lot of people right. had in the area. So that actually helped a lot. And then we were really blessed with the 12, 13, and 14 vintages, mm-hmm. which were fantastic. 
music. And then 15 came around, which uh, my, my mom oh, told me when we started, <laughs> you know, obviously we, we thought we knew what we were doing. We obviously had no idea what we were doing. And she said, for every, you know, couple of good vintages you're going to have out here on the coast, you're going to have a real doozy that's just going to take it out of you. And, I mean, in 2015 in our area, some vineyards just didn't even pick. Uh, we suffered a 90% loss on one site, and it was wow. it was bad. It was really wow. bad. But that's just growing wine on the coast. I mean, it makes some of the best that's wine a, out there. But it's it's, it's an risk. agricultural product, and you're subject to the vintage. Mother nature is the boss. But just you know, speaking about the Duttons and the families, that's why we were able to start this company. I mean, bootstrapped, we were able to ask for help. The Duttons were a great so family friend. Probably the hardest part which is finding people who will give you grapes and yeah. then worrying about quality. That was... That was a given. Sa- right. I mean, and of course, it's a lot of hard work. But. but obviously a motivation. Like, yeah. we have this, you know, let's run with it. So when you talk about making the wines, and walk me through this, I think I know the answer. Did any of you guys make the wine, or you brought a winemaker in right away, or you made changes tell me who and how's make you know so that was the hardest part we didn't know how to make wine so 2011 we leaned on terry adams who was making wine at dutton estate so that was our official winemaker 2012 we started making it on our own i remember working harvest or well actually miles was working harvest that did anyone consult you well that year we made it at we custom crushed it so but we were able to work in the garage back in miles property with his family we negotiated some space and we couldn't afford to process all the grapes so we made a couple barrels in the garage and that was our first that was attempt. gift wine though we didn't sell yeah, yeah we didn't sell <laughs> let's be legal here <laughs> uh, but people yeah, I don't want to get you in trouble but yeah, yeah. we we worked harvest you know year after year and that was the philosophy and miles kept going and and that was kind of actually it's a story when thomas rivers brown you know, when we were introduced oh, yeah. to him, and we brought him over to Miles Vineyard, yeah. and we showed off the was Chateau Was the introduction garage. with the intent to talk to him about a winemaker, or you were in downtown Napa or Sonoma, and you bumped into him? I mean, how'd that come about? It was word of mouth. It was, it was definitely mutual friends, so it was through the grapevine. And we knew that Thomas had worked with the site before. So in 2013, when we took over the Terriot Vineyard from... Um, you know, the prior lease, we knew we had to step up our winemaking game. We could not make that wine. Right. I mean, we could, but we didn't want to mess up. And that was a philosophy. See, we didn't that want master's to degree paid off. Yeah, you got to be You made a good decision there. <laughs> well, it, it's all about, I, I think the wine industry especially, it's all about knowing what you don't know and, and having people you can work with. You know, more people than you know say that in the wine business. <laughs> it's, it's almost like a silly phrase, but it's a wine phrase for sure. It's true. true. And that's how Thomas, you know, through mutual friends, because he was buying some of the fruit. And it was his highest rate He makes wine. a teriyaki. He does. And it was his highest rate. His own his, label. His yeah. only Chardonnay that he had up to that point. So when he heard that these three young men are going to take over the family vineyards, you know, through a mutual friend, Scott Zeller, who farmed Summa Vineyard, the first Pinot Noir Which is another one of his. It's epic site. Epic, yeah. And so Scott more or less set up this meeting. And Max was, you know, pretty strong on it. Miles and I were a little nervous because big wig from Napa, like rich, opulent cabs. Yeah, well, that, so stay with that. I mean, why did you ultimately select him? Is it because he was the name and you had to get moving? Because this guy is known for full throttle. Yeah. I mean, you know, Napa's known for these opulent wines. He continues to practice, except for his own wines. 
you know, kind of. I mean, you knew you were getting into that? Well, so we didn't, we, that's why we were nervous. I wouldn't say we were shaking our boots, but we were cautious. Well, growing up in Sonoma, you're always Cautious taught. because aware of that style and that's not the profile That's not what we were going okay. for. We want hands-off, native yeast, unfined, unfiltered, really an expression of the vineyard. But that's when we realized meeting Thomas, that was his passion, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And he only bought that fruit in Occidental. It was literally a match made in heaven. Yeah, he's, he's known for one style, but his own personal passion projects are all kind of aligned really well with what we wanted to do. So well, let's get specific. So now you have Thomas, certainly among the most capable. He has a reputation, you have a vision, you sit down and you discuss the type of wines you want to make. Um, how do you articulate that? I mean, what, what did you, what was, you know, the vision with him? Because you had been making wine before, but. I think, I think it honestly started without us even expecting it. We walked Terriot Vineyard, at, almost on the spot he offers to make wine if we sell him some fruit. And so, okay, we're like, this guy has potential. Like, we could actually work with him. He's cool. But we go over to Miles Vineyard. And that's when I have the bright idea to share the Chateau Garage. I'm really hoping you wouldn't say Oh, you have to share the story because this is when he first tasted the wine that Miles produced on his this own. This is the overflow stuff? Yeah. They had two barrels in the garage? Yeah, this yes. is when we, we the stuff you're going to get arrested uh, for? <laughs> we ran out of money in 2012 to custom crush anymore. So uh, the last t about ton of fruit, I just I didn't want it to go to waste. So I just started making it in my parents' garage. And we jokingly called it Chateau Garage. And while we were walking the, the site, I'm looking at Chris, and I can tell he's thinking about mentioning it to Thomas, and I'm just screaming at him in my head, like, do not tell Thomas we have garage wine. Do not tell Thomas. And Chris goes, hey, Miles has something in the garage. Let's go taste it. And I'm of like, ah, oh, great. So we get in there, and I don't even have a proper wine thief. That's what engaged him, though. Right? Yeah. Okay, well. I didn't even have a proper wine thief. I just had a, a turkey baster I stole from my mom's kitchen without the squeeze of it. <laughs> so it, Did it still have, like, dried turkey yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I cleaned it. I was, I was being sanitary. <laughs> but I, I pulled a little sample for him, and he tasted it. And he said, and I'm going to I'm gonna quote, and I'm going to censor, so it's you know, family-friendly. He said, that's effing awesome. Really? Um, yeah, and that was really cool to hear from that, Thomas. That sealed... Yeah, and well, he offered But did me, that project to him the style of stuff <clears throat> that you made already and want to make? Well, it confirmed it for sure, because that, in that moment, Thomas offered Miles an internship at Tambor Bay, where we were custom crushing, and that's when we knew Miles was going to be there, he was going to learn, and also be able to communicate. Was and Thomas doing Tambor Bay? He had just started in uh, 2013. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, but we made that wine, Miles made that wine completely hands off, you know? So there's no yeast, no filtering, no finding. Wait, obviously. wait, say that again. The wine in the barrel? In or? the barrel in the garage. Yeah. And yeah. so tasting that hill It was crust, a minimal intervention. 100%. Right. And that was our style. And I think Thomas immediately was impressed by it. And so he knew that we weren't just like three guys like walking into a vineyard, just like right. messing around. Like you, we were you, serious. You gave him a good shot. I mean, <laughs> don't. He can't keep secrets, <laughs> right? But that <laughs> no, was a true. secret broken I, that really yeah. well, kind of sealed a good deal. Well, yeah, I mean, for so at this point, because everybody senses, everybody knows what everyone wants, that you let him do his thing. There's a lot I mean, of trust. He, he's a tough guy to stand over. Well, so like, why are you doing this, or you know, why? Are you... I would say the biggest thing with Thomas is the trust when it comes to picking and farming. Our wine is made in the vineyard, and I'm not just saying that for the sake he's of He's out there it. for all of that? He's been, in the beginning, he just was out there. Still guy. out there. Right. Yeah, so he more or less showed us that you can pick grapes based off of flavor. Doesn't have to be all the numbers, doesn't have to be the bricks. I mean, acid, all that mattered, but it was on the palate. And so when we started picking based off of flavor, 
that changed everything. And we've always dictated the picks. Obviously, Thomas has supported us. Yeah. We've run things by him. Yeah. But that is, I think, the biggest con contributor to the quality of the wine and the style of the wine, and then being hands-off from there on. And he, it's just complete trust. Um, I want to talk about the wines in a minute, but I think you'll agree with me. I think the Sonoma Coast is having a moment. Yeah. Not that it wasn't always great and we could name winemakers 20, 30, 40 years back when it even wasn't a thing. Um, and I think along with that, and I think you guys exhibit, there's a generational change going on, right? I mean, two of you guys are, you know, vineyard people. You know, you got in through, you know, the back door in a way. But is that where the market's going? I mean, it, it, is it hard not to look at the millennial market? I mean, do you sit there and say, who am I making this wine for? Just let me make the best wine and whoever buys it. I mean, that's a really good question. The, um, the millennial wine market, I mean, people our age, they just don't buy as much. It's, it's, uh, right. it's really difficult to figure out how you sell to them, right? And then... Uh, yeah, I would definitely say our, our chief customer base is still the, the baby boomer generation, but they're starting to retire. Uh, you know, we've we've had customers who, who they buy, you know, their maximum allocation every single year, and then suddenly they hit retirement age and they still want to support, but they have to scale back their purchasing a little bit. So it's... Or oh, they're getting sick. Yeah. I saw it a lot when I worked at William Salium, and not to jump over you, but when, I mean, we have a lot of friends, so young people who are buying the wines, but they're friends. So when they bought cases in the beginning, I was like, hey, you bought 1% of our production. <laughs> that was pretty cool. And But they've stayed true. And there are a lot of young people, thanks to our social media presence. I mean, the amount of signups well, we get daily. Well, that's something you guys, yeah. you kind of grew up with a phone in your hand true. and social to communicate. So that's free advertising, yeah, however I mean, you want to. we got 45,000 followers on Instagram, and that's organic. So to get the signups there, most of them are younger. They skew. Um, they're they're making purchases, obviously, but like they're not huge purchases. And I have we haven't done enough analysis on this. I mean, it's a two-year wait before we can allocate, so we haven't really, you know, there's always a wish for more data. But um, we have noticed that the younger market, it's harder to get in and, and build a brand like this. We wouldn't have been able to do it unless we grew up on the vineyards. So interestingly, we're at the Naples Wine and Food Festival. Yeah. And I'm curious why you're here. Why are you at the festival? I mean, what, what does it offer? You know, we talked about how things came about, who the market is, the type of wines. You're here. We know the type of people here. We, you know, what do you want to get out of it? These, these are enthusiasts. Um, you know, we're meeting amazing people. The, the fact that we're invited, we're humbled and grateful and thankful. But what we realize is this is the best opportunity to give back. So we don't have a ton of wine. So we get to pour at a very specific I'm happy that's event. the first thing you said. Oh, this is, this is about giving back. That's number one. Yeah. I was a little shocked when I had to figure out the insurance value for the wine that we shipped here. <laughs> right. It was the biggest shipment we've ever shipped. But, you know, I realized... You're not used to that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> if you get it, you know, pour wine, support a great cause, work with great people who are passionate about what they're doing, who enjoy everything about the event, the food, the wine, you know, the causes, like there is some harmony there that you can't find elsewhere. And we were invited through a mutual friend and we were just, I was like shocked. It's like, oh my gosh, Naples, this is like the top. Like I, we've never done a live auction before. So to be here today, auctioning off a lot with Judge Judy and Mark Owen, the Navy SEAL of the Osama Bin Laden mission and SEAL team and wine and Spago, like that's incredible. You have an interesting lot. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, the lots and how interesting. I mean, some of them are, you know, over the top, mm -hmm. um, but that's what this 
the attendees are looking for. Well, and we feel so honored to be, this is the beginning for us. Uh, and, you know, Dick Grace was on the plane with us on the ride over, and he came over, introduced himself. I was so excited to meet him. And he's like, Chris and Miles, I'm more excited about you guys than anybody else. And no offense to the Rajos <laughs> or the Staglins. Obviously, a lot of... He like, said that? Yeah, he said that because he's like, you guys are the next generation. You showed up here. You made this happen. Thank you for coming. It was so inspiring. It's very humbling, too. Yeah. Don't you wish your mom was there or something? <laughs> you know, just some kind of validation that you could share. I'll tell you, my parents, they're shocked to see what we're doing, but so proud of it. Well, they're very listen, shocked by the selfie with you could tell, uh, You know, I can tell how your hearts are into it, and, you know, it's the right combo. Let's talk about the wines. How many yeah. different wines are you making? You know, I actually did a count the other day. Uh, we have almost seven different Chardonnays now, wow. mainly vineyard designates. And then we have five. But do those vary year by year? Like one year you'll have the vineyard designate and the next year maybe you're not doing it? Or it's you consistent. Have... Every it year. We're so more you're up to seven? Seven Chardonnays, five Pinots, and one Cabernet. And we add one new vineyard The cab's new, right? The cab is brand new. Eastern Whose Oak idea Bill. was it? We that had was to make Max. a cab. Oh, that was all Max. Yeah, yeah. we'll give Max yeah. credit because he loves his you know special his, rich Napa Cabernet. I thought his actor friends would be Chardonnay drinkers. Oh, no, 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 no. I guess no, no, he no, thinks no. he's got to drink cab or something. <laughs> he's got quite a few buddies who have been you know looking for the cab, but I think my favorite's a Chardonnay. I don't know what yours is, Miles, but so seven shards. Yeah. Um, just quickly roll off the uh, the designates. So we just added Silver Eagle Chardonnay. Uh, we work with, and so this is through Ulysses Valdez. He really opened some doors, and we're so happy to work with the family now. Um, El Diablo, uh, which is another Valdez farm property. And then we have, uh, it's called Tent Stop, which is coming from Dutton Ranch. It's where Joe Dutton lives, and it's an amazing ranch. Uh, we have the B.A. Terrier Chardonnay, uh, the Charles Heint Chardonnay, and then we have our Appalachian Russian River and Sonoma Coast. All great stuff. Now, Amazing sights. What about the Pinots? Um, How uh, many? I mean, the Pinots? Well, we're up to five Pinots. Five, five Pinots. Pinots? Yeah, yeah. So we got the, the Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir, uh, the Day One Pinot Noir. That's a blend of vineyards? Oh, Day One is Miles Vineyard. Yeah. It's our yeah. estate. It, yeah, it used to be called Hillcrest. We changed the name to Day One because uh, that's where we got our start. That's where it Hillcrest all Hillcrest was the name of the vineyard, right? Yeah, so yeah. the yeah. grapes are sourced entirely from Hillcrest Vineyard. And it's Hillcrest called vineyard. Day One? Yeah. Now called Day One okay. because it's been sourced from Hillcrest Vineyard since Day One. Yeah, exactly. Um, then we've got the Terra di Promisio Vineyard, which is in the Petaluma Wind. Gap, um, the uh, what's what am I supposed to call this vineyard now? It's uh, the so the vineyard times. formerly known as Kiefer Ranch. We took over the Costa Brown block of the original That's right. Kiefer. They used to make it Kiefer. To say that. But we named it. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. We named it MCM. I could edit it if you're. Except <laughs> the email. Yeah. Yeah. Trademarks are just a funny thing in this industry. But we call it MCM. Chris doesn't care anyway. He'll tell <laughs> anybody anything at any like, time. Yeah, like the turkey yeah. baster in Chateau yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't keep a secret. But yeah. we do. That's our flagship. So we call it MCM 88, yeah. which stands for Max, Chris, and Miles. 88, the year that we were born. Also doubles for the Roman numerals. 1900. That's MCM plus 88, 1988. Yeah. But we're really excited. Our third estate that we planted a few years back is coming on board this year. So we planted 10 acres with Thomas adjacent to Steve Kistler's Occidental Project. And we're going to pick it. It's called Terriot Bodega. And we're going to get the first vintage he later He stole the bodega from uh, Kistler. He <laughs> uses bodega headlands. He's got all these bodega things. Yeah. Um, well, we figured it's Terriot, but it needs the place to go with it. Yeah. Um, if people want to get their hands on the wine, what's it's you don't make a lot, so it no. makes it a little more difficult. 
but the whole idea of sitting with me is to talk about what you're doing, get people interested, and obviously they're going to say, I got to try this stuff. Yeah. If they want to make an attempt, restaurants? The, well, the restaurants are by far the quickest way to get the wine. And we have a list of most of them online, really only the California restaurants. Do you restaurants. do online sales waiting list? There's are a waiting list. It's almost two years now. But, but if they uh, Listen, up, I've been on some that are five, seven. Yeah, so like two, two years is worth it. Yeah, not you know? too bad. So yeah. I don't want to scare people away. You know? <laughs> That's the point. What's the website? So www.senses, so S-E-N-S-E-S, wines, with the S, dot com. And we're all over Instagram, et cetera, social media. What's the uh, Instagram account? Is it oh, Senses? at Senses Wines. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like the plans for the future acquisition, if it's good, expansion, more wine, right? I mean, I mean we're just trying to find the right vineyards. I mean, we're not growing for the sake of growing. But if someone's offering, this year, I didn't mention the other Pinot Noir vineyard, we're still, you know, going over the details, but we're bringing on board one of the best Pinot Noir sites in Sonoma County. And so that's how we grow. When a friend of a friend... You make it sound so easy, (laughs) which, you know, is great, Uh you know, and good for you. But I I, I think, you know, at least in California, the fruit, who it's from, the history is, you know, the whole deal. And you really had a good, steady path with that. And at least you're not screwing it up i mean you're making yeah. good wine yeah. and we've we've never stepped on the gas too hard to to try and grow for the sake of growing we've always let that growth be right. organic and let that's the, a good philosophy you don't let supply. any one thing uh get to you well you can't yeah. nail it the proof is always in the pudding as i like to say it's the wine that does the speaking but we're very passionate on behind the scenes with finding the vineyards the people and producing it but it's the wine that keeps people coming back right um we got to wrap up we're running out of time. Um, I could spend, you know, hours on each topic, yeah. but I wanted to, um, you know, give every, give everyone an idea of what you're doing. Um, so that's Census Wine, Census Wines, Wines, yeah, Census Wines. Um, Chris gave you uh, where you could uh, find more about them. I would recommend. They brought a little wine in. I think when we wrap the show up, I'm going to take a couple of swigs. Um, I want to thank. Was it Streeter or Strider? Streeter. Go ahead, you got it. Go with your guts. <laughs> I want to thank Chris Streeter and Miles Lawrence Briggs. They are from Census Wines. They're, as I said earlier, a new generation of winemakers with a slant towards some incredible vineyards and fruit. Um, so look out for that. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio. We bring wine to the people. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. 
You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash Great Nation. This episode of The Great Nation is brought to you by Washington Wine. Great wine requires great fruit and Washington State's wine-growing region have that department covered. Washington is home to 14 growing regions, 1,000 wineries, and 70 grape varieties including Riesling, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Syrah. Learn more about Washington Wines and their growers at WashingtonWine.org. During this time, it's more important than ever to support independent growers and winemakers, no matter where you are. There are options to shop online and join Washington Wine Clubs that ship nationally. Find out about the wines the world is talking about at WashingtonWine.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey on the Heritage Radio Network. We are at the Naples Winter Wine Festival, benefiting the Naples Children and Education Foundation. Our guest is Will Harlan, Managing Director of Promontory Winery in Napa, California. Welcome to The Grape Nation, Will. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Did I get that right? You're the Managing Director? Yep, so far. That's the right title? And is it Promontory? Promontory? How do you pronounce it? Uh, promontory. Promontory. Yeah. That's how I would have pronounced it. Um, it's not an easy one. <laughs> so just a little about Promontory. It's, it's the Harlan family's most recent project. Is it yep. fair to say That's that? A right. um, little different than the other family wineries. Give me a little sort of history or evolution yeah. of how you know it came about. And then we'll go backwards at some point. You know, I think a lot of people know Harlan. There's always some that don't. <laughs> But let's talk about promontory. Sure. So, yeah, I'll start by just mentioning that, you know, each one of my family's uh, wine growing endeavors is really, um, is really its own independent entity. Um, you know, Harlan Estate, Bond, Promontory, each have their own winery, their own team, uh, they, they, you know, their own philosophy, their own vision. They have this, the, they share some values, some underlying values, and, and uh, obviously the family ownership, but each one really stands on its own, and that's how we felt was strongest to build the foundations for the, for the very long run. Promontory, even though it's, uh, you know, our most recent, um, we've been working on now for a little over 10 years, um, but the original seed, the idea for Promontory, or at least our, our understanding of this particular land, traces its it was roots back to... a walk in to, the woods, right? Well, yeah, it traces its, its roots back to the original days when my dad was hiking around the hills of Oakville looking for land for Harlan Estate. So Is that just, something he did? Like, let me just get out and see <laughs> if there's something... Oh, yeah. I mean, at that time, he was really looking for land that didn't have a precedent, you know, land that was still completely untouched and didn't have a vineyard on it yet. So it took him hiking, it took him years of hiking through the, um, really through the woods in this kind of corner of Oakville and Yonville that he was, uh, he was fixated on in order to piece together the parcels of land that would become Harlan Estate. And it was during one of these hikes that he found himself a little bit further south than he had gone before, and he discovered this place you know, still very close to the heart of Napa Valley, just on the border between Oakville and Yontville, but completely hidden from view. And he found this place and he thought, wow, this would be, you know, a fantastic piece of property to somehow wind into the parcels for, for Harlan Estate. 
Now, this was, again, about 1983-ish. Um, unfortunately... Was, I know what you're going to say, but was he ready <laughs> to pull the trigger then if he could? Yes, he was. So, unfortunately, what? Unfortunately, uh, the, the southern property was not for sale, and uh, the, the, the owners were not interested in, in, in selling it. But, you know, we didn't forget about it. He didn't forget about were it. Were there vines on the property? Not or? in, not it in was the early just, 80s. It, it was, was just completely property. raw land. Right. Yeah, so there's no development. I mean, there's one tiny dirt road that traces its way in, but other than that, it's just forest. Well, the story could end there, but it doesn't, so... No, we, we were fortunate enough, we got a call from a family friend um, in 2008, and he gave us a nudge, letting us know that this southern property was going to come on the market soon, and that if we were interested in it, we should you know go out there. And so take this is 15, 20 years later, right? Yeah. From the yeah. kind of, <clears throat> it's crazy. Yeah. So that's when uh, you know my dad approached me and our our winemaker Corey Emting and kind of told us the story of discovering this place. Neither Corey or I had known that this place existed even up until that point. So, but isn't there an irony that it's not that far from where you are? Just a few hundred yards, technically, yeah. right? I mean, it's yeah. I mean, the properties aren't contiguous, but they're very close. Right. So it was, I mean, it was a surprise for Corey, both, you know, Corey and myself, we both grew up in, in Napa Valley, our entire lives went through St. Helena High School. I mean, we were embedded in Napa Valley. We had no idea this place existed so close to Harlem Estate. So, 08, you get a yep. shot to buy it, <clears throat> yep. and then you're off to the races as far as wanting to make wine, a winery. Tell well, me what happens there. No, there was an interesting evolution. We, you know, we... We were notified this place was going to come on the market, so we had to do some very quick decision making. You know, was this something we were interested in? So we had to do some uh, some hasty <laughs> due diligence. It was a you know we we did as much as we could in a short period of time. We couldn't find anything wrong with the soils. We dug hundreds of soil pits, but um, we, you know everything pointed to this being probably pretty good vineyard land. Um, and so we ended up making the decision to purchase the property halfway through 2008, but without a clear idea of what we were going to do with it. We thought, you know, maybe this would be a part of um, Harlan Estate as originally planned, or maybe it this wasn't could be the, an independent, you know, brand yet. new. This right. was just, you okay. know, very fuzzy, thinking, hey, this is a good piece of land. Right. Probably let's let's take a gamble, and it was a pretty big gamble at that point. Um, there was, in between the time that we discovered it, my dad discovered it in the early 80s, and when Corey and I were walking on the property in 2008, the previous owners had planted a bit of vines. So there were 80 acres of vines spread out kind of in a patchwork among the, the forest. Yeah. Very, the property itself is very, very steep. And so there's only certain parts of it that, that were um, level enough to be planted. Interesting. Um, so you and Corey sort of represent, you know, a genera generational change in that sense. Um, I think it is it Bob Levy. It been yeah. making wine with yeah. the family for a lot of years. Did Corey work under Bob? Yeah, Corey came to work with us when he was almost twenty. Um, so how long has he been? Uh, now just about twenty years. Is it that long, <laughs> Jesus? And he's the lead winemaker. He right? has now moved into the uh, director of, of uh, wine growing role. We still have Bob that that is uh, right. that still works with us. And so, I mean, one of the most important things for us trying to build something that will last for generations is, is having this continuity of experience and knowledge. And so, having to, getting to have two winemakers really be still intimately yeah, involved. Yeah, it's pretty, it's is, pretty is amazing. Really but that's sort of the vision of, you know, your dad, you and all of that. Um, I'm curious about two things. One is, can you still walk around Napa and stumble on a 
property like that, specifically, you I know, mean, down by Yountville <laughs> and, you know, the bench and the hills, it doesn't sound like it. It's, and it ain't going to be cheap. No. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure there are any, any more discoveries like that. It's, it was pretty unheard of that something right. like this. Even then. Even so I'm saying now. It, it I don't, seems, yeah, I, I, I can't see a whole bunch more. And explain this to me. I think your dad said for Promontory, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it'll fill Napa's missing shade of red. <laughs> was he referring to Promontory? Or? He, was re- he was referring to... Uh, what this, did he mean? <laughs> the missing shade of red. This is a really an idea of uh, kind of... It, it represents a wine that hasn't hasn't really been made before, and it, it so closely ties into this particular property, and it, it really ties back to our decision that that this place needed to have its own identity. As we started working with the land and started making some wine, just in a temporary facility, as we you know sought to understand its character and understand the the, the terroir, etc., we made some pretty interesting discoveries and realized that even though it was quite close to Harlan Estate in proximity the wine growing environment was completely different and we had to take an entirely new approach to farming and and, and things and so at the end of the day we saw an opportunity to really produce a wine very different than anything we had done and very different than anything else that we had so let's talk about that i mean we're not talking secrets now but napa and it's a good reputation has a reputation for making big fruity opulent wines people do it to different levels Harlan certainly, you know, does that well. Um, I think the Bond stuff, you know, there's different designates, Vecino, whatever, all that stuff. Was, I'll ask you straight up, was the idea to make a little more restrained wine or that's not the right question? I mean, what, what, what was the wine you wanted to make? So, you know, we didn't come into it with a prescribed idea of what we wanted to do. We, we really came into it trying to understand if this land was going to be really good land. So it had to speak for itself and guide you in a way. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we began by just making wine from the existing vines as we, you know, we, we knew we were going to have to do a lot of replanting. But This was the, the vines that were yeah. there. But as I mentioned, we made a few very interesting discoveries about the underlying, um, the underlying material that the, the vines were on. You know, people talk about soil types. There's thousands of different soil types. We take the conversation back one step to geology. You know, there's only three, you know, volcanic, sedimentary, and metamorphic. Napa Valley is almost entirely volcanic or sedimentary. What we found here was a small island of metamorphic rock. That doesn't but exist. explain the site. I mean, it's yeah. between two. It's like a seismic fault or something, yeah, we have these which makes minor, it unique. Exactly. No, Talk to very, me about that for a second. Interesting. We have these two minor faults that run in parallel. And uh, so on the property, we have the volcanics uh, on, the, on the eastern side. We have sedimentary soils on the western side. But in between the two, we have this metamorphic rock that, that is a layer that should have been much deeper in the strata, but was pushed up by the, the action of these two faults working together. So in one place we have, in one, you know, not too uh, <laughs> big of a spot, we have all three geologic formations on planet Earth in one place, and we really have the only representation of this metamorphic material in our kind of Oakville-Yauntville. Is apiary. that, so that sounds like it's unusual for the area and certainly Completely unique. Something we've never seen. I before. mean, it's, it's like we're on something no one else yeah. is on. So how does that, 
<clears throat> so that pushes you towards the wines you're going to make. Now you've done the analysis. It has certainly influenced our understanding of what this property naturally wanted to do. Now, this is a, a property that's slightly south. So in Napa Valley, that means a little bit cooler because you're closer to the bay. You have more of a marine influence. It's also slightly higher in elevation. So between about 500 and 1,100 feet. So again, slightly cooler. You add in this, this metamorphic rock. Um, you end up getting a much more mineral-driven expression of Cabernet. It tends to be more linear, focused. It has, you know, it has the, the, the tannin structure has this ver verticality to it, but it focuses back in at the end rather than kind of fanning out broadly on the palate. Is it 100% Cab? Just about. We, we call it Cabernet. When we I mean, I'm not, yeah, there's I no mean, indictment here. I'm just more curious. What, what are you putting a little of? So there's a few northern-facing calcareous soils with, that uh, Corey likes to plant a little bit of Cabernet Franc, but okay, it makes that's up a less, good... than, less than 1%. You know. Oh, so it's just like a dollop, yeah, literally, yeah. as far as all of that. Um, I'm curious, at least at Promontory, and we could talk about other stuff, what kind of vineyard practices? I mean, you know, you, you live on those properties, you grew up on those properties, you know, sustainability is more than a buzzword now. Yeah. What are you doing as far as in the field? And then talk to me about the cellar, too. Yeah, well, you know, to get the real answer, you'd have to talk to our winemakers. But um, at Promontory, we learned a huge amount about, you know, how to, <laughs> how to farm and maybe a little bit even different way than we were before. We've been, you know, we've been going down the... the the avenue of organic and biodynamic farming now for quite a while, even with Harlan Estate. But at Promontory, we had to take that even to another degree. And, Why? Um, well, the the soils that, or the the land itself was so steep that you know we we were very you know we wanted to be very careful about any erosion problems. And so, so we, the site forced you to think or yes. rethink how you have to approach. So, it. for I instance, uh, we actually employ a no-till uh, approach to to farming there. And so you know we really don't want to break up the soils we don't want to mix the the different layers that you know build up over time and so um that has that has actually informed a lot of our other uh, plantings at, at harlan state and bond as well but we really try and rely on a carefully selected group of cover crops to do as many of the things as as we can create the right environments for the um all the good stuff and you know hindering the bad stuff so that's great. I mean, it, it's, it's more of this it, kind of natural farming that Corey talks about. Isn't there, isn't there a Japanese guy who? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Fukuoka. That's right. What's yeah, his Mas name? Did I get Masanobu it? Fukuoka? And he, he's sort of like the Rudolf Steiner of his own gig. Yeah, you know, the you could say that. You, could you say know, that. he has a thing. And, and Corey is kind of keyed into this guy or some of his philosophies. Yeah, I mean, it's he Masanobu wrote a book called One Straw Revolution, which was all about trying to understand your environment to the extent that you can do one thing less at every kind of opportunity. Um, and Corey's really taken that as a, as a core part of the approach, obviously taking a lot of the best parts of organic and biodynamics, especially right. with the timing of, of everything and being very careful and aware of, of when things happen. But... Um, no, I think it's I think it's really really helped us uh, in in our approach to understanding this place without imposing a prescriptive idea of how right. farming should happen. What about in the cellar? Obviously, if you have that mindset, yeah, you're not going in the cellar and dumping megapro and everything, <laughs> right? I mean, what are you doing no. there? No, um, 
well, you know, Harlan State and Bond, we do have to take a different approach, both with farming and in the and, and in the uh, and in the cellar and, and promontory, of course. At promontory, in particular, uh, we realized early on that we have so much material, great quality material, but there's so much of it that's coming in with the fruit that we have to be very gentle with extraction, so that we don't cover up the really the character and the purity. Of the Wait, place. go back when you say material, just all the byproduct from the vine, color, you know, everything. All that there's stuff. There's so much naturally in this place that we have to be very cognizant, very careful about, you know, our extraction temperatures, you know length of macerations, things like that. And we've had to dial that back quite a bit for Promontory because it just had so much natural... To make the wine that you want to make. To make something that really was pure and expressed this place without covering up any, you know, too much of the... too much so what character. what does that mean? Like shorter maceration, a little bit shorter, a little bit cooler, cool temperature, time, you know, on the skins and all of that stuff, and that site and the fruit dictated, you know. Yeah, this was really all. us following the <laughs> following the fruit. I mean, you know, wine making, wine growing is still a very human uh, uh, activity. You know, there are very human decisions that have to go into this. It's not like we can just step yeah. back and put hands Unless off. Unless you're making an industrial wine, which right. we're not. But but at the end of the day, we want to we want to make those decisions to to follow as closely as we can this really pure expression of the place. What um, you're not doing typical oak. 100% oak barrels, new No, oil. at Promontory, we... You, you changed it up. We, we had to... We really felt strongly that it would be great to change that that side of things up a bit. Um, Promontory, when it's young, naturally has so much tannin. It's great quality tannin. We love it, but it's very tightly wound. And so Corey wanted to... Um, he really wanted to retain the purity of the place and, and, and this certain levity that that promontory has it's not it doesn't quite have the the weight as of some other wines and so we wanted to to really keep that intact so rather than using a, a traditional oak approach we felt that if we if we were able to find a much more neutral vessel and so the the, the oak would sort of interact we felt it would more. give something to it, the wine that wasn't already there right a characteristic or okay yeah. and and oak is wonderful we love we love you know oak and it can play the right is role is that for a decision wines, you made but, you know once you start pulling yeah. the grapes and inventing them yeah we didn't you're start like promontory that way right you're, you're not doing oak you know so you well we to to explain a little bit of that we're using much larger vessels and a much more neutral oak so they're Austrian oak. They've been seasoned, you know, beforehand. So they're, they're used oak, you know, 30 hectoliter um, Austrian oak uh, vessels that are already quite neutral by the time that wine goes in there. Wait, so Austrian, which is interesting. Yeah. You <clears throat> purchase them used? Nope, but we, we get them new. And, and you... We'll, water will spend some time you'll in there You'll break for a while, them in we'll, or whatever your process is. We'll break is. them in with the wine that we produce from the young vines. And so that'll kind of season them to the point where they get to a bit closer to neutrality. So just walk me through that process. So these are big vessels, right? Yeah. So you crush the grapes, they're macerating, you pull the juice out. Do they then go into the big Austrian? No, they go into used barriques just to finish out mallow, the separate okay. components. And then we put the final blend together after a month or two or, or so. And then they, they go into the, the large vessels for aging. And How long are they in there? Well, we gave ourselves five years. So... <laughs> You know, each vintage we feel will need kind of its own timeline. But with five years, we think that we're gonna, we're probably gonna be able to have enough time for most vintages. Not every vintage needs that much time. Right. But we're effectively using time to soften and let things, you know, evolve rather than 
um, kind of adding in some of that softness with with a French oak regime. Right. Interesting. Um, you know, when people think of Harlan, you know, they know it's this great wine, and like, hey, I'm going to Napa. I want to visit them. <laughs> no shot at that. You're changing it up a little at Promontory, right? You're making it a little more accessible. We do have. Is uh, it fair to say that? I interrupted and I didn't mean to, but is it fair to say you're going for a different market or extend the market or potentially younger, or it's the opportunity to do that? No, I think... So the question was, you're offering hospitality. Yep. Let's talk about that yep. and you know who's responding to that. Yeah, no, we, we do receive visitors at Promontory Winery by appointment. Um, right. And really our thinking was... We, we really value the, the opportunity to not just tell our story directly to people, let them experience something, but more than anything, to let them see for themselves what we're doing and make up their own mind before they uh, you know, make a commitment or an investment to, uh, that you know, whether or not this resonates with them. And, you um, probably don't have to. <laughs> Well, just because of the reputation, but it is the right thing to do. It's a, it's an accessibility this thing. Time, you know, this how Harlan Estate was built was perfect for what it is at the right. time it was built. It's a different time. You're it's right. A different time, and and the market is it's getting younger, getting older. You know, you have the fact that we can engage with people at an earlier stage of their you know interest in wine is, I think, really cool. Um, it's still that's the key point. You're getting brand loyalty out there and out to potentially a newer, younger audience. You know, yeah. So we're you know we're very open to that and very excited about it. So you can contact the winery and you can make an appointment to come yeah. to Promontory right. and see what's going on there. Um, another thing I noticed, and I don't think you've been doing this, you're marketing a little different. You're looking at European markets, or <laughs> well, as an extension of you know understanding that this is a different time in history. Right. That. Um, I thought, you know, we, we felt it might be interesting to build our distribution a little bit differently and, and almost start from the outside in. And so I'm focusing more on international distribution to begin with. I don't have enough wine for both domestic right. and international. Right, that's always going to be a problem. But, um, Are you going to escalate the amount of wine you make? Can you? We, we can't plant any more vines than exist there today. Okay. We have had to replant quite a bit of the existing vines, and so those aren't into their maturity yet. So we're making about... So those, you'll get more by the vines coming into their exactly. own. Right. So Not by adding, but... Right. Yeah, we, have about, we make about 2,000 cases right now. We think in 15 or 20 years that'll creep up closer to 4,000 cases. Um, but so the, the European thing is a good idea. It's not necessary because you're going to sell no, no, the no. wine. We, we, from the very beginning, even with Harlan Estate and Bond, we felt that having a global presence was very important for the longevity and creating a strong foundation for the future. So even though we could sell all of our wine direct to consumer within the U.S., we made it a point to carve off enough of our allocation for Smart. the international markets. Smart. So it's not, you know, for Promontory and Harlan Estate, it's not just Europe. We have at Promontory, I have a pretty good balance. It's almost exactly 50-50 Europe and Asia. Right. Asia's, you know, a huge market. I meant more global than yeah, Europe, yeah, yeah. you know, getting out of the States. Um, are you still making Mascot? Yeah. No, I've got an amazing team. That Tell everyone that. what Mascot is, how it came about quickly. <laughs> yeah, the Mascot was really my Right, it's my your thing. Project. That's kind of how I got interested in wine, and it started off just a small 
project that I was doing for uh, just blending together for a few friends without really thinking about it as any sort of real right. line with a label a or a name thing. or anything like that. But um, I was living in San Francisco working in the tech world and was just putting together this, this little blend and built up a pretty nice audience of first just friends, but uh, ended up building it into a, um, a little wine, recruited a team, got that off the ground, and it was kind of lined up perfectly with getting started on Promontory. <laughs> it was a good thing for you to get involved with. Yeah. What, how, not how is the wine made, but what's in the wine? Where Are, you, are yeah. you contracting grapes or are you no, using? No, 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 So we all, we use really just the vineyards that, that we work with, with the Harlan Estate, Bond, and Promontory. So the mascot is made from the young vines. So the vines that aren't quite old enough for consideration. It's sort of a Harlan second wine. You know, a lot of the great Bordeaux's, <laughs> right? I mean, that's not a it's negative more, thing. It's more like, a, actually more like a village because okay. it's sourcing from different Good, good way vineyards. to put it. Um, but these are vines that are between, you know, five to 12 years old. Um, and they, they're all made at the separate wineries and only come together at the blending table. Interesting. Yeah. It's a good project. Um, we got to wrap up soon, but just tell me why you're at the Naples Wine and Food Festival. I mean, what brings you guys down here? Well, I mean, first of all, it's an amazing cause. Uh, my parents have been uh, coming to this since the very first, the very first year. They, they came for the first 11 years, and we try to make it to as many as we can. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a great gathering of people, amazing in the wine business to see such, such wonderful wines being poured. And, um, it is pretty amazing. Yeah, anytime we can come together and, and, in such a spirit and do something really good, it's hard not to want to be. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of OG on this, you know, the family. It's a nice thing to hear. Um, Will, we got to wrap up. I thank you for taking the time. Uh, Promontory sounds like a great project. Thank you. Um, I wouldn't expect less coming from, you know, the Harlan family. I think you guys nailed it, <laughs> and we'll continue to do so. Good luck with, you know, the wine. Thank you very everything. much. Um, I want to thank Will Harlan from Promontory Wine. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.